Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. In our series of meditations, we've considered the matter of crucifixion, of death, being crucified with Christ, dying with Christ in Romans 6. We saw that the world has been crucified to us and we to the world. And if you summarize all of these things, you come up with at least three realities. First of all, what it means, and that is it means the end of the old and the beginning of the new creation. Secondly, what our part in this is, and that is that we are to turn from the old and turn to the new, otherwise known as repentance. And then thirdly, we saw that the symbol of this reality in in symbolic form is baptism where we are buried with Christ in his death and we are raised in his resurrection to new life. Something we did not discuss and I began to discuss last Sunday is what does the old include and what does the new look like? What is old and what is new? In our meditations on being crucified, we've looked at two passages in Galatians. The first was Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ And then in chapter 6, verse 14, May I never boast except on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There is a third mention of crucifixion or crucifying in Galatians. It's here in our text, Galatians 5, 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with his passions and desires. And I think what we find Paul doing here is using a different contrast. Instead of only speaking of the old and the new, he now talks of the flesh and the spirit. And the last part of his letter, beginning here to the end of Galatians, he speaks of the flesh at least eight times. Um, And so this seems to be the focus as he closes out his letter to the Galatians. I mentioned this last week, this is review, but if you have the NIV 1984 edition, which is what we have on the book, cart back there and what I use, um, you will find that instead of the flesh, they have in fact put the sinful nature. Um, And I think that we should stay with flesh, but someone asked me after church last Sunday, uh, should we not rather stick with the sinful nature rather than uh, flesh? Well, the main problem I have with us saying sinful nature is that the word that Paul uses here is the same word that he uses in chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I live in the body. Well, if we're going to be consistent, we would say the life I live in the sinful nature, but that's not what Paul means. He uses the same word as what we find in our text in 524. Um, Part of this... First of all, when you translate, you also interpret as you go along. But I think there is a tendency, there is a temptation, depending on how you view the body, to see that the actions of the body are sinful, but in fact the attitudes of the spirit are what are good. And so you have the fruit of the spirit, which we will look at in a few minutes. So that's spiritual, but then the acts of the flesh, those are sinful. And so rather than saying flesh, um, we might want to say the sinful nature. Among the earliest heresies that emerged among Christians, or those who purported to be Christians, was in fact 
they said the body was bad. In fact, they said all creation was bad. Because if you're going to say that the physical body is bad, then that by extension it goes out and you finally say, um, yeah, creation is not good. The material world is not good. Only that which is spirit is. In fact, some people went so far as to say there was another God who created the world. Another God created the physicality and, and that was not good. But the, the, but the true God is the one who is a God of spirit. As Paul writes to the Galatians, implied is a process that we start off in a condition known as the flesh. We are born into human families. We have individual identities, but we have communal identities. We're part of families and larger communities. Well, as we begin to grow, we find that we have all kinds of desires. And if we, in fact, would sort of let these desires if we would give in to them, then they would in fact produce in us the works that we find in verses 19 through 21, which is not what God created us for. When Jesus came into the world with the good news, it is in fact a turning away from these things that are wrong and a turning to something new. And people are renewed. God's spirit begins to do his work in us. We are being recreated. So what we find is death to the old ways and new life in the spirit. We need to acknowledge that we are embodied creatures. We have bodies. The body is who we are. It's not all of who we are, but it is in fact who we are. It isn't something we have. People say, oh yes, I have a body. Um, that in fact it's, it's almost a possession rather than a, a form of identity. It is, in fact, a significant part of who we are. We are corrupted by sin, but we have bodies. And so within these bodies, the flesh, we have all kinds of desires. The issue is not physical versus spiritual. And I, I want to make that clear. So what Paul is telling us is there are certain things which are natural, if you wish, to human nature in our bodies. We are in fact fallen creatures and so we tend to do that which is wrong, to give in to that which is wrong. We are by definition dependent. We need instruction and this is why Genesis, the first 11 chapters are so critical. Adam was without sin but he needed to be given instructions. God had to tell him what to do. He didn't know on his own. By he, because we are creatures, we are dependent upon the Creator. Uh, I don't know that I can stress that enough. Because I think many people view the Christian life as sort of reaching a point at which we are no longer dependent upon God. That we reach maturity and we no longer need God. Um, we will always be dependent upon God, I would argue, even in the eternal state. In creation, we are told what we need, what we are supposed to do. Adam and Eve disobeyed and so plunged the world into darkness. Now that we become the children of God in recreation, we still need to be told what to do. We still need God's revelation. We aren't simply human beings. We are that. We are fallen human beings. And so, as Gia read to us today from Jeremiah, you know, 
the Jews come to Jeremiah and say, ask God what we should do and we will do whatever he says and may terrible things happen to us if we don't do what he says. And interestingly, the word of the Lord comes 10 days later. So they wait, I would say, somewhat patiently and then Jeremiah tells them, this is what God says, don't go to Egypt, stay here. And what do they do? They go to Egypt. It is our nature to disobey, even when we are given instructions. We need the Spirit of God to lead us and to direct us. Let's begin reading in verse number 16 uh, and read to verse number 26 and then discuss it. So I say, Paul writes, and by the way, I will put flesh instead of sinful nature. So as you're reading along, you'll see sinful nature, but I will say flesh. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying one another. The key issue for us as human beings is where does your true identity rest? We're given two choices, either the flesh or the spirit. As embodied creatures, we have two options. We can either walk in the spirit as the spirit would have us live. God made us so he knows how we should live. Or we can gratify the desires of the flesh. I mentioned this last week. There's several questions that come up. First of all, may we not in fact do both? May we not in fact sort of walk in the spirit, but then also do the deeds of the flesh? And Paul says no. Verse 17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. And so Paul spells out the differences. This is what the flesh wants to do. This is what the spirit would have you do. The second question is, if you do one, if you walk in the spirit, for example, does that automatically cancel out the other? That is, the acts of the flesh. Um, Some would see this almost as an organic process. And I would say that, no, we are called to obey And obedience means not only saying yes to these things, the fruit of the Spirit, but saying no to the works of the flesh. By the way, one of the reasons that I spent last Sunday and today on this is because I realized that after going through uh, and talking about being crucified and the old and the new, I never did explain what is involved with the new. And we shouldn't say, well, I've given up the old and so I will automatically, I will intuitively know what, is, what are the things I'm supposed to do? And no, that's not the way that it works. 
The reality is we will struggle against this until the day of our death. And that's why we have our text today that we are to crucify the flesh. A side note here, we talked about this, that the already not yet, something has already happened and yet it's not yet finished. So Jesus came into the world to to save us. And in fact, we are now his people, but the process is continuing. Um, Already we are the children of God, but we are not yet the people we should be. And therefore there is a struggle against the deeds of the flesh. Christ has already come, has already given his life and been raised from the dead. But the fulfillment, the final fulfillment, has not yet come. Already he has done that, but not yet is it fully completed. We have the Spirit of God within us. We are the people of God. And yet we still struggle. I think verse number 18 is perhaps more important, maybe even than I have realized. If you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Because one of the things that is so frustrating as a believer is to say, I am a child of God, I love God. And yet we find ourselves doing things that we should not do. So Paul says, your salvation does not depend on you keeping the law. And secondly, we have in fact the Spirit of God who will direct us, who will instruct us. In verses 19 to 21, Uh, Paul gives us a list. It's not exhaustive because at the end he says, and the like. So this is a partial list of what the flesh may choose to do. There are 15 sins. We Last week we categorized them in four ways. Sexual sins, so sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. Religious or ritual sins, idolatry, witchcraft. um, The ESV has sorcery. And then social sins, if you wish, sins against our fellow man. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy. And then lastly, there are what some have called drinking sins, drunkenness and orgies. Um, And as I mentioned last week, um, orgies would seem to be in the first category. Why doesn't Paul put it up there? But he's coming full circle. He's closing the circle, if you wish. And these are the things, and there are many other things that the flesh desires to do. We could put these in four different categories instead of the ones that I've given. First of all, self-gratification rather than loving your neighbor. Sexual immorality is by its nature unloving. Which may shock some people because they're like, well, I'm involved in an illicit affair or whatever because I love this person. And Paul would say, no, you're gratifying the flesh. You do not love your neighbor as you should. Secondly, we put something in the place of God. This is idolatry. Thirdly, we absolutely refuse to love our neighbor. And so the hatred, envy, dissensions, all these things describe what our nature, what our flesh, what we, in the old way, would rather do. And then lastly, interesting enough, being out of control. Drunkenness and orgies. And this is a perfect segue into, okay, that's the old. And he ends with out of control. And now he goes to the new, what we find in the fruit of the Spirit. There are nine qualities that Paul mentions here. Um, Paul is, in fact, presenting a sharp contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh 
clearly have their origin. They get their energy from us, our bodies, our natures, who we are as created beings. Quite apart from the Creator. It's one of the great ironies. It is God who gives us breath, who sustains our life, and oftentimes we take that breath and that life and use it to gratify the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is something that an outside power source, it is the Spirit of God who enables us to do the things that we should be doing. The qualities that Paul gives here are those that we find in the Lord Jesus. This is how Jesus was when he was here on earth. And if we belong to Jesus, then this is the way that we should live. We can divide these works into four categories. Actually, three categories. Four for the works of the flesh. There are three here. The qualities or the graces that demonstrate our attitude toward God. Love, joy, and peace. Secondly, our qualities or graces that demonstrate our attitude toward other people. Patience, kindness, goodness. And lastly, the qualities or graces that demonstrate our attitude toward ourselves. And here we find faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control versus the end of the works of the flesh where there is no self-control. There's not a one-to-one correspondence. I mean, Paul gives us 15 acts of the flesh and nine fruit of the Spirit, so you, you don't have like 15 and 15 or 9 and 9. And it's kind of dangerous if you try to force the issue. Um, I don't think that's what Paul has in mind. But in fact, there are things that we can say, okay, we're not supposed to do this. This, in fact, is what we're supposed to do. This is what God intended. This is what we want to do. So love, which is the nature of God, is other-directed. It is directed outside of ourselves. It's demonstrated in the Lord Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. The flesh, on the other hand, loves itself. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery are all about my desires. It's what I want to do. Joy rests in God and what he has done, is doing, and will do. The flesh, on the other hand, wants that which will make me happy. And here we find idolatry. I create my own God. And sorcery or magic, I try to get what I want on my own. Peace the way things ought to be, the way God intended things to be. But the flesh, no, I go my own way. I want to hate. I like discord, dissensions, and factions or divisions. Then there is patience, the ability to be wronged again and again, have the ability, in fact, to retaliate, but to choose not to. But the flesh, fits of rage. That's what we would rather do. Patience versus fits of rage. Kindness, which is the other side of patience. It's the active part. Patience, if you wish, is in a sense a passive part. Uh, Kindness is active, but the flesh wants its own way, selfish ambition. Goodness, immoral excellence, no, no, no. Envy is the way that the flesh would go. Faithfulness and gentleness, no, we would prefer jealousy. Self-control, the strength to say no to myself in order to meet the needs of others. That is, we are more concerned for others than we are for ourselves, but the flesh wants its own way. 
no control, drunkenness and orgies. It is this last virtue, self-control, that leads to what we find in verse number 24, which is our text. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So I mentioned earlier, death to the life that the flesh determines and new life in the spirit, the bearing of fruit. The first sign of new life, and so therefore the badge, that which signifies that we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, is faith in him, faith in the one who was crucified for us. But this is only the beginning. Um, it is important. I mean, you have to have a beginning, but you can't sort of stay at the starting line. It is only the beginning. We are called to move away by death, away from the old and to new life. This is left behind. What is left behind is the old way. And so we say with Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Those things are dead to me. I have died to those things. And the life that we now have is not the way we used to live. It should not be. The life that is left behind is left behind through death. And in fact, a new life takes its place. This new life is marked by these nine qualities. And again, the reason for doing this is because I had talked about dying to the old way and living to the new way. Well, what does the new way look like? Well, Paul spells it out for us here. The question then may come up, um, Am I crucified or am I crucifying? In verses uh, chapter 2:20 and in 6:14, you know, Paul said, "I have been crucified with Christ, and then I have been crucified to the world." But here, rather than being the one acted upon, in verse 24, we are the ones who act upon. We crucify the flesh. In the first two, Paul speaks of that which is done to us. Here he speaks of what we do. Now, some people get confused here and say, is the Christian life something for which we have to work? And the answer to this is important. Nowhere does Paul suggest for a moment that there is anything, in fact, that we can do to win God's favor or his grace. But, having said that, we cannot abandon the old way and come to the new way we have to get rid of this in order to come to the new way we can't say well I'm going to be over here in the flesh but I will be a child of God over there no this has to be put to death it's something that we are to work on so are we responsible for becoming better Christians, if you wish, growing up in the faith? Uh, on the one hand, we would say, yes, we are to walk in the Spirit. We see that in the next verse. But immediately we would say no, because remember, there is a power source outside of ourselves. It is the Spirit who works in us. Um, as I said earlier, if you're in the flesh, you need to be instructed. If you're in the spirit, you need to be instructed. We are dependent creatures. We need the spirit of God. But are we supposed to do anything? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, 
Paul tells them, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Amen. It sounds like it's all on me. I'm supposed to do this. Well, if it's not all on me, I, I work in conjunction with God. But this sentence is not finished. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That is to say, as we pass from death to life, we, by God's grace, must choose to say no to those things, put them to death. But it is God's spirit who energizes us, who gives us the ability to do that. On our own, we cannot. And I don't know if you have experienced the frustration of trying in your own power to get rid of bad habits or to do things that you don't want to do, um, somehow we forget that it is the Spirit of God who enables us, by God's grace, to do that. It is important, and I, I want to make this clear, that Paul thinks in terms not of the individual, but of the church, of the community of faith. If you go back through Galatians and begin at the first verse, Paul is more concerned with the family of God than he is with individual members. And it's much more than the fact that he uses plurals like brothers, sons of God, children of the free woman, yourselves. There's a real sense in which we are together. This is a community project. This isn't an individual thing. I think that may be part of our frustration that we're trying to do this on our own and not simply apart from the Spirit of God, apart from our brothers and sisters. If you look at verse number 15, um, which is before our, our passage, we begin in verse 16. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. And when we get into chapter 6, you'll see, I mean, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. By the way, just a side note, before verse number 15 of Galatians 5, in verse number 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And then verses 13 and 14. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature of the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. That is, it's for others. It isn't simply for yourself. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are already the people of God. We already belong to Christ. But we are still in process. We are to put to death the sins or the, the acts of the flesh, and we are to live out the fruit of the Spirit. I think Paul wants us to know that when the Spirit of God works in our lives, we begin to see these qualities, love, joy, peace, and so on. It is not, it is not that some God, somehow God bypasses our will. And I must confess, there have been times in my life when I have prayed Precisely that, that God would somehow bypass Damon Woods, my will, uh, my desires, and that God would simply do his work. Uh, I'll just sort of let him do it to me uh, because I had a real sense that I couldn't do it myself. But that, in fact, is not the way that it works. It isn't a matter of relaxing and somehow allowing God to possess us. And by the way, possessing Possession is something that demons do. It is not something that God does. 
God works in us, but he does not take us over. If, in fact, it is simply a matter of relaxing and letting the Spirit do what he's supposed to do, look at verse number 25. This verse would make no sense whatsoever. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. See, we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We live by the Spirit. We are to keep in step with the Spirit. It requires action on our part. We are not passive. We are, in fact, active in this regard. I suspect that when we read verses like this, we we tend to think in terms of personal relationship. But also, there's a sense that it's it's optional, that it's voluntary, that you you should choose to walk, to live in the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit. Um, No. This is not an option. What we find is that there is the command that this is what we are supposed to do. Somehow, I think we view the Holy Spirit as a visitor, a guest who lives with us, um, and sometimes we listen to him and sometimes we don't. Uh, but it's a sort of optional. I can, I can choose to do what I want. Um, somehow, we have come up with the idea that if you're a Christian, you can no longer be told what to do. Because that's the old, that's the law. The law gave us commandments. And we read today in our prayer of confession, these various commandments. And now that I have the Spirit of God, the Spirit will just sort of carry me along and I can do the things uh, that I should do. No, we are still under authority. We're still under authority. Not only our culture, but I think the church has somehow taken up the idea that authority is a dirty word. It's something we want nothing to do with. The reality is we need someone to tell us what to do. We are dependent creatures. Uh, I mentioned this years ago, a book by Victor Lee Austin entitled Up With Authority, Why We Need Authority to Flourish as Human Beings. And in the introduction, he says, we cannot succeed at being human beings. We cannot have a flourishing human life without the functioning of authority in the multiple dimensions within which we live. Then a bit later, he says, the necessity of authority is the manifestation of the glory of being human. Boy, that just sounds 180 degrees different from what we want to think. For him to say, this is the glory of being a human being, somebody is over you. Somebody has authority over you. Yeah, we think what's great about being a human being is you can choose to do whatever it is you want. As I mentioned earlier, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave Adam instructions. Adam was without sin, but he was a dependent creature as we are. So in the conclusion of this book, uh, Austin says, it is not sin that makes authority necessary. It is not sin that makes authority necessary. Rather, even if human beings were unencumbered by sin, they would still need authority in order to flourish. We need someone to tell us what to do. And God, by his spirit, does precisely that. 
As creatures, we need to be told what to do. As new creatures, in the new life, we have to be told what to do. Just a side note, why do, why do we think authority is such a bad thing? Uh, well, part of it is because we are rebels. We have rebelled against God's authority, and that goes back to our ancestors, Adam and Eve. Um, culturally, uh, and particularly in this country, uh, beginning in the 60s, I think, um, where the, the motto was question authority, we just just really have a very negative view of it. And you can pick and choose, but there are certain verses in the Bible that seem not to be very high on authority. Um, let me read, Jesus called them, that is the twelve together, and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentile lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. It seems that Jesus wasn't big on authority. And the authorities, in fact, put him to death. Authority is seen as supporting the status quo. There can be no meaningful change as long as you have someone in authority. Paul would disagree. He is not telling us, the Galatians or us, that the gospel has gotten rid of the need for authority. Okay? Rather, it is through Jesus, the crucified Messiah, that we can have a new life in the Spirit of God. And having this new life doesn't mean we get to do what we want. Okay? It doesn't mean we have the freedom to do as we please. But rather, we are under the authority of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit. This is why Paul writes what he does. I just don't think that we hear it the way that he intends. We hear about the fruit of the Spirit and we think, well, that's nice. Um, Yeah, okay, I'll just sort of sit back. It's After all, and I've heard sermons on this, it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Damon Woods. And so I'll just sort of relax, sit back, and the Spirit will in fact bring forth all this fruit in my life. The Spirit, as I said, is seen as a guest who lives with us with our approval, who makes gentle suggestions along the way, who may in fact be ignored, who is not, in the words of so many children, not the boss of us. And this is to reject God's authority in our lives. If we are led by the Spirit, verse 16, if we live... uh, That's 18 verse. If we live by the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, verse 25 again, if we keep in step with the Spirit, this is not something that is optional, though we tend to see it that way. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. If we do not, if we're like, yeah, I I don't think I'm going to do that. Look at verse number 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. If we do not submit to the authority of the Spirit, then we will live in anarchy. We will, in fact, be trying to live two lives at the same time, some type of spiritual schizophrenia, living in the flesh and living in the Spirit. In any case, it's all about me. It becomes this radical individualism that so infects us today. It's all about self-centeredness, not self-control. It's about the loss of control. 
Because the reality is, sometimes we want to be angry. Sometimes we want to hate. Sometimes we want to do the things that Paul talks about um, in his list of the works of the flesh. And the Spirit says no. We don't always listen. My purpose in this meditation is to sort of detail a bit what the new life is like. If we've died to the old, great. What was that about? And now that we live a new life, what does that look like? This is a meditation, I think, versus a sermon. I haven't given you everything. It's not possible. But I hope that I've given you some things to think about. And by God's grace to meditate on the days to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, being who we are, we have received the truth. And then we have a tendency to make it say whatever it is we want. To justify the things that we do or the things that we think, our attitudes. We rebel against authority, beginning with yours. And somehow we dress it up as being led by the Spirit. The reality is we are told what the fruit of the Spirit is. But even those things we redefine. We are told of the acts of the flesh. And though we know they are wrong, there are times when we would rather go down that path. That we want to hate someone. We want to be angry. We do not want to live in peace with others. I thank you that by your grace we are already your children. But the work is not yet finished. It's ongoing. Help us to see. May your spirit work in our hearts for us to see that his presence is not optional. He's not a visitor. It is the spirit of the Lord Jesus who lives within us, who is to direct us, and we are to, in fact, crucify the acts of the flesh, those things that are wrong. When we want to do them, we put them to death and say, no, I will not do that. And instead, we will walk with the spirit. This is what the Christian life is about. And sadly, it's something that we would rather ignore. May the Spirit of God, your Spirit, work in our hearts as we think on these things. In this country, tomorrow's Memorial Day, and we remember and we honor those who have served, those who have in some cases, given their lives that we might have the freedoms that we do. In our congregation, we think of Bob King and Mike Griarte, who served. And we do seek to honor them. For Bob, who dearly loved his son Arthur and his daughter Valerie,
prayed for them every day. We hold them up and ask that you would draw them to yourself as Bob so earnestly prayed. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.